Well, life is full of simple pleasures. Google has lists of all these types of pleasures that I think almost anyone in North America would enjoy. For example, popping bubble wrap, or finding that pull-through parking spot in a tight parking lot, or how about the feeling of waking up in the morning and realizing that you still have 45 minutes to sleep before your alarm goes off. That's a really rare occurrence for me, but if it ever happens, it is a pleasure. How about the feeling of climbing into a bed with freshly clean sheets? Or that first day in spring after a long, cold winter that you get to take the park off and all you wear is a sweater or a, or a light jacket and you roll the windows down in the car for the first time. I like that feeling, if you couldn't tell. Um, or how about that first sip of coffee in the morning or that first bite of a delicious, maybe it's your favorite dessert. For me, personally, I have a distinct pleasure. I find a great pleasure in London fogs. Now, for those of you who don't know what a London fog is or you haven't had the pleasure of trying a London fog, it's a hot drink with Earl Grey tea, vanilla syrup, and foamed milk. It's delicious. And every single coffee shop I go to, I have to try a London fog. So I have a mental list of all the London fogs I try, and I rank them according to taste. And regardless of how long I stare at a menu in a coffee shop, I will almost always still default to the London fog, even if it's not high up on that mental list of mine. Then when I sit down and I take that first sip, it's as if all is right in the world. Now, today, we're going to be, the title of the message is Life's Greatest Pleasure. We're going to be talking about a pleasure that is a little bit better than a London fog, to, to be honest. Um, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 16 and finding out what David, King David, finds his greatest pleasure in. So if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it or something, I don't know, turn to it and find Psalm 16. If you don't have that, it should be on the screen and you can follow along as I read it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale or let, my, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for the privilege of being able to read it and talk about it in a public place. 
And I thank you that you speak to each one of us individually through your word and through our thoughts and and through others. And I ask that you would speak to us this morning and you would make us willing and able to hear your voice and listen. The author of this Psalm 16 was King David. And it's not actually known what kind of circumstances he was facing when he wrote the psalm. He could have been running for his life from, uh, from any sort of danger, or he could have simply been reflecting on his life experiences. At any rate, he's describing how he has made the Lord his greatest treasure in life. He is not only choosing the Lord to be his refuge, but he's choosing him to be his everything. He then rejoices in and reminds us of all the benefits of choosing the Lord to be his portion, specifically benefits of counsel and instruction, security, and joy and pleasures forevermore. In this psalm, David answers two questions, and those are the two questions we're going to be talking about today. The first is, how do we make the Lord our greatest treasure? And the second is, why should we make the Lord our greatest treasure? So the first, how do we make the Lord our greatest treasure? We're going to talk about three ways that David describes in this psalm. And the first is, surrender to his boundaries. Verses 1 to 2 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So this word preserve means to guard and protect and keep, but it also means to hedge about, as with thorns. So this hedge of thorns that David's talking about to protect him is is protecting him from the outside and any dangers outside of God's will. But since it's made of thorns, it would be pretty painful to leave it from the inside out, right? So it also keeps him within God's will, protecting him from himself. How amazing is it that David actually asked God to put this boundary, this hedge about him. Think of a child. Does a child ever say, hey dad, hey mom, can you just put a boundary outside for me so that I stay within that boundary? Can you make sure I don't go beyond that boundary and play outside of it? Does a kid ever say that? No way. At least I never did. I think kids are always testing boundaries and trying to go beyond them. Become a teacher. You find that out real fast. Or a parent. My parents often wrote down stories about my sisters and I, uh, silly things we would say or do as kids. And there's one story in this book about a time when I asked my mom if I could play in the front yard by myself. Now, usually I was only ever allowed to play in the backyard because there were obviously no cars. So when I asked, my mom said, no, Beth, you're, you're way too little. And to that, I defiantly held my hand level with my forehead and said, but mom, I'm up to here on myself. (laughs) Pretty sound logic, I know. You see, the backyard was awesome. We had this little swing set. We had a little fort that connected to it. And there was a huge field with this beautiful park and there was a forest. It was great. The front yard, on the other hand, had a little tree and that was about it. Yet it was so appealing to me. And because it was out of the boundary, I assumed I was missing out on something. And we do the same thing. We test boundaries instead of surrendering to God and asking for them. When God puts up a boundary in our life, we think we're missing out. 
And we could be playing on the swings in the back or running around the park, but we think this one tree in the front yard looks so appealing. We can get angry with God for these boundaries. And we think that we're big enough. We're up to here on ourselves. But we know what kind of logic that is. And it's because our natural bend is arrogance. To think that we can make our own boundaries or that we don't need any hedge. And David shows us that we have to go against our natural bend, our natural arrogance, and surrender to Jesus. Asking him to create boundaries in our lives to protect us. He also shows us that we have to go beyond just asking for boundaries. He goes further than that because he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This, I think, is the most humble act of surrender that that David could do. Because he's a king. He's a leader of Israel. And he humbly places the Lord as his leader. He has riches and power at his fingertips. And he's done incredible things for Israel. Everyone loves him. Yet he chooses to acknowledge that he would be nothing. That he has no good without the Lord. We're not even kings or queens, and we have a hard time admitting that sometimes. When we don't surrender to God, we are saying that we are good and he is not. That he is dispensable. David surrenders to God because he knows that because God is good, his boundaries are good for us. Remember verse 6? The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Those lines, those boundary lines that God places in our lives when he says, no, not that, but this, those lines fall in good, pleasant places for us. They're good lines. They protect us from the cars on the street and give us the whole backyard. So what about you? Do you believe that? Is God good? Are his boundaries in your life good? Do you test or resent them or even blow past them? Or do you ask him for them? Surrender to his boundaries. The second thing David tells us that we can do to make the Lord our greatest treasure is choose the person, not the portion. Verse 5 says, the Lord is my chosen portion and cup. You hold my lot. So back then the Israelites were allotted sections of land in the promised land. And David is saying that instead of choosing his destiny or his land portion, metaphorically, he has chosen the Lord himself. So at a restaurant, there's a menu of meals, right? And You can choose from this meal, and, you know, we all make our choices for various reasons. But personally, I really like the control of being able to make my own choice. Now, it takes me a while to make a choice from a menu, and I will likely ask for input from anyone at the table. But I am going to make that decision, no one else. And I would never turn to someone else and say, hey, you pick for me, go ahead. Because they don't know what mood I'm in. They don't know what I feel like eating. They don't know how hungry I am. They don't know that I would way rather have something savory for breakfast than some sweet waffle. I'd never pick someone else. And in life, we have a lot of portions and life plans to choose from. 
But instead of choosing his own meal, David chooses the Lord and says, you pick my meal, Lord. And in this case, the Lord knows all of David's moods, but more importantly, he knows the good plan that he has laid out for David, and he knows what David needs to eat. Well, that sounds great, but pretty difficult. How is David actually able to choose the Lord instead of his own portion? Because he knew that he was picking the one who held his lot. Now, back in those days before the Holy Spirit fell on all men and women, people made decisions by casting lots. And the Israelites cast lots in order to determine which tribe was going to get which piece of land in the promised land. So a person's lot was often a bunch of pebbles or small stones, just like this, with symbols on them. And what they would do was they would toss or throw the pebbles in a small area and then interpret them based on how they fell and what the symbols were. So David is saying that instead of holding his own pebbles and his own future, because it represented every decision for his future, instead of holding his own lot, he was picking the Lord to hold his lot, to hold the pebbles of his future. He says, you hold my lot. He gives up control and hands the pebbles over to the Lord so that his future is not determined by himself or random chance and how the the pebbles fall, but by God himself. And according to one commentator, David is saying that having the Lord as his portion is better than the best piece of land that he could ever choose or inherit. So we try and hold our pebbles and we try to control, you know, how they're thrown or, or especially we try to control how they're interpreted. But David is saying that we need to give our pebbles over to the Lord and stop holding on to them so tightly and let him hold them and let him make the decisions. Picking our person rather than our portion. Because he has planned every part of our future, and it is much better than we could think, ask, or imagine. For me, this year has had a a real common theme of surrender and giving up control. And I realized that deep down, I didn't really trust God enough to hold my pebbles. And I doubted, actually, if he was really good. So God spoke to me about this in sort of a vision one night, and he took me up to this mountain and to a clearing, and when we got to the clearing, I see this altar, and for some reason I knew it was the altar that God, that God had taken Abraham to and demanded sacrifice, and I see it and I inwardly groan, because I know what that means. It means surrender and giving up control and walking up those steps of the altar and laying it all down, right? It's sacrifice. It's not easy. So I slowly start trudging up the stairs of this altar. It, for some reason, had a lot of stairs. And I get to the top and I lie down. But I immediately realize that Jesus is lying down right next to me. And the next thing I knew, he lightly pushes me off this altar to wait for him on the side of it. And I realized then that all this time, 
I had pictured it as though Jesus was standing off to the side, pointing and telling me what to do. And that I was doing it alone. I was walking up the stairs alone. I was lying there lonely and alone. And this whole time it felt unloving and it felt distant. But I realized that it's exactly the opposite. That he's actually with me in every single step, enabling me not only to surrender, but give him my pebbles and give up control. And I also realized that Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. Because 2,000 years ago, he laid down on the altar, which was the cross, lightly pushed us off and took our own punishment. That is the height of love. So can I trust him to help me surrender? Can I trust him to hold my pebbles? Yes. Can you trust him enough to hold your little pebbles, your future? Are you trying to control your portion and the way we interpret it and, and how we find it and discover it? Or are you choosing the person who holds your lot, who can hold your lot? Who's holding your pebbles right now? The third way that we're going to talk about that David encourages encourages us to make the Lord our greatest treasure is remember our true inheritance. So verse 6 says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In order to truly make the Lord our treasure, we have to see him as our inheritance. Psalm 16 has been one of those life scriptures for me. I used to quote this particular verse, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance all the time. Um, and I used to quote it to reassure myself that God has good things for me. Despite all this disappointment, despite this rejection, despite how not nice this feels, God has good things for me. I have a beautiful inheritance. And I, and I saw this inheritance as things, to be honest. I saw it as a great husband. I saw it as a great ministry, as a great job and kids, everything. And I thought, oh, I can't wait for all these good things coming my way. To some extent, this is true because our inheritances include our destinies, which include some of those things. Maybe all, who knows. But the word for inheritance here is the same one used in Deuteronomy 18.2 and Numbers 18.20. And in these verses, God is telling the Israelites that he alone is the inheritance of the Levites, who were the priests. And that every single tribe in Israel was given a land inheritance and a land portion, except the Levites. Because God said to the Levites, you have no land inheritance because I alone am your inheritance. And, and David is using the same word and alluding to this same thing in Psalm 16, saying that the Lord is his true inheritance. So yes, our inheritances include good things that God has for us, but our focus needs to be on the Lord himself, our beautiful inheritance. 
So as I studied this psalm more this year, I realized that for so many years of my life, I had been focusing on my inheritance as all of the good things God was going to give me. And I had actually placed expectations on God, a lot of them. And I think, personally, that expectations are really just manifestations of arrogance, entitlement, and control. As I said before, I went through a period of time in in which I doubted God's goodness. And I think a lot of this actually came on because all the expectations I had placed on God were not met in the way that I wanted them to be. And so my whole theology, that hope that I had reassured myself for years, I've got all these good things coming my way, was suddenly threatened. And I thought, if I have lived righteously my whole life, God, how could you do this? Why does it look like this and not like this, how I've pictured it? And I thought, why, why isn't it meeting my expectations? And why is it harder than I thought it would be? Why does it not feel as good as I thought it would be? And, and if this is what it looks like, my expectations being disappointed, then are you even good? And so I got angry and I got offended with God. And someone else in the Bible actually had the same issue as me. The elder brother in the prodigal son's story. This elder brother served his father faithfully his entire life. Meanwhile, his younger brother didn't. Instead, his younger brother ran off with his inheritance early and spent it on worthless things. So when he came back empty-handed and repentant, His father welcomed him home and and used some of the elder brother's inheritance to pay for the party. So the elder brother got really offended with his father. And he said, he wouldn't even enter the party. He stayed out of it. And he said, when the father came out, he said, I've been serving you my entire life. And you've never thrown me a party like this. And the father said, but son, everything I have is yours. And you are always with me. Implying that, hey, that's the best thing that you could possibly have. You don't even need a party because you have it all. Even still, the elder brother stayed offended and didn't enter the party. And that's where Jesus ends the parable. This brother and I have shared quite a few similarities Because we focused on certain blessings and and good things that we were going to get from our father. Instead of finding our hope and our satisfaction in our father himself, we were trying to find it in these things that we were looking forward to. But our father is everything. He is our inheritance. And he is our prize. And what's more is that because he is our inheritance, everything he has is ours. And we can rest with him, be with him. You are always with me forever. And that's the party. He is the beautiful inheritance. And when we get that, I think all our expectations are thrown out the window. 
And we no longer limit God. And then he can actually work in our lives and blow right past all of those meager expectations we once had. So when you think of your inheritance, do you think of the what? Or do you think of the who? Are you seeing the things that God will do or give you? Or are you seeing him? God himself. Well, all of this, all of these responses to David's first question sound like a lot of surrender. Surrender to the boundaries, surrender the pebbles, surrender the expectations. But does it really benefit us or does it just benefit God and cause us to suffer? Well, David goes on to to actually answer that. And he goes on to tell us how making the Lord his greatest treasure, surrendering everything, became his ultimate pleasure in life. So why should we make the Lord our greatest treasure? Three benefits. There's tons in there, but we're going to talk about three that David writes about. The first is counsel and instruction. When we make the Lord our greatest treasure, God gives us counsel and instruction because it says in verse 11 and the first bit of verse, no, verse 7 and the first bit of verse 11, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. You make known to me the path of life. See, counsel and instruction are two different things, actually. Counsel means to advise, the meaning behind it, advise, deliberate, guide, purpose, while instruction actually has to do with discipline and growth. And both of those things, yes, even discipline, is good because David blesses the Lord for them. And, and when we hand our pebbles over to the Lord, he's not saying, okay, great, thanks. Now fumble around in the dark and try and figure out what you're supposed to do. And it's like a puzzle. It'll be fun. He doesn't do that to us. Because David says, you counsel me, you give me direction, and you instruct me. So God gives us counsel, direction, and growth. He guides us in the right path, which is the path of life. The second benefit to making the Lord our greatest treasure is security. Verses 8 and 9 say, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. When we surrender to God and we give him our pebbles, he actually holds them in his hand. So if our pebbles represent our future then that means that God is actually holding our future in his hands. You think anyone could snatch that out of God's hand? That means our future is secure in the Lord. That our flesh will dwell secure until he says it's time to go home, and our spirits will dwell secure with him in eternity. The last, and if you get anything out of today, this is the most important thing. So I used to have a prof that used to say at some point in our lecture every time, if you've been falling asleep until now, wake up just for this. So wake up just for this. The third benefit that David talks about through the entire psalm is joy and pleasure. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David uses a word, um, words to imply or mean joy and pleasure nine times throughout this psalm. And out of 11 verses, six of them have at least one of these words that imply joy and pleasure. I think he's really trying to get the point across that when we make the Lord our greatest treasure, it becomes our greatest pleasure. And for pleasures to exist forevermore, they have to be right now. So it's not that, oh yeah, we'll have pleasures in heaven, that'll be great. It's pleasures exist right now for us. But they also exist in eternity. Because in verse 10, David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter and Paul both actually reference this verse in the New Testament. And they say that David was actually prophesying about Jesus' resurrection. And this is the eternal bit. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can actually experience pleasures in eternity with him. Because we get to share in eternity with him. That's a good thing, right? So... Where does this pleasure come from? Does it come from getting everything we want or from a few of our expectations being met? No. David says pleasure comes from the presence of God, from God himself. And the greatest pleasure in life is experiencing God's presence and savoring it. So last month uh, in July, we had the consumed youth conference in Thunder Bay. And at the breakfast table one morning, I was sitting there and I was asking some of the, some of the kids uh, how they were liking the weekend. And one of the boys piped up and said, oh, I'm loving it. And so I said, oh, wow, what are you loving so much? Why is it so great? And he's like, oh, it's just awesome. It's so much fun. I've never been outside of Manitoba before, so that's super awesome. And, and last night was awesome. He's actually talking like this. It was so funny. And so he was talking about one of the sessions and the ministry time we'd had after it. And, and so I said, wow, why was last night so awesome for you? And he's like, oh, you could feel the presence of God. I went up for, and he's saying this, I went up, I went up for the altar call and, and I was standing there feeling a little dumb because I didn't really know why I was standing there anymore. But, uh, but then I confessed and I felt so much joy. And, and I could feel the presence of God. And I couldn't help just smile and laugh at what he was saying. Because he was experiencing so much pleasure and joy from the presence of God at 13 years old. You know, kids get excited about video games at that age. And this kid is 13 and excited about the presence of God. And no one fed that to him. I didn't say anything about the presence of God. He came up with it himself. Because God's presence can be felt by anyone at any age. But here's the thing. Sometimes I think we all feel like we have to be in the right setting to experience the presence of God. So yeah, a youth service or a nice church service with dimmed lights and a nice synth pad going on there. Now... I'm not bashing the synth pad because I'm one of the ones who plays it and I like it. But what we're doing there is creating just atmosphere, right? And background. That's not the presence of God. 
And yes, we can experience the presence of God in that setting, and it's really nice. But we can actually find pleasure in God's presence at any moment of any given day because his presence lives in each one of us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And I experienced this last summer on on one of my runs. I had taken a different route down a road that had mostly just fields surrounding it. And so I was admiring the beauty of the landscape as I was running, and I began praying. And as I ran and prayed, I suddenly felt just God's nearness in such a beautiful way. And I was so moved that I started crying on my run. That's never happened before. If anything, you'd think you'd be crying from fatigue and pain. But no, as much as... I like, I hate stopping when I, when I'm on a run. I was so moved by God's nearness and God's presence that I actually stopped and in the middle of the road stood there weeping. It was a good thing no cars came by. <laughs> and I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because God was touching me in a way that was so deep. And I felt so much pleasure and contentment and joy in that. And he was speaking to me and giving me things to pray in. And it was awesome. And that pleasure and joy I experienced continued throughout the rest of the night as I carried on with my evening. And this is what David's talking about, is his presence. We experience joy like our friend that consumed. And we experience pleasure and contentment like I did on this run. And yeah, we experience it in church, but we can experience it on our daily basis. We can experience it on the car to work, picking up the kids from school. We can experience it cooking dinner or at work or at school or on the sports field. We don't always because I don't think we always want to or or ask to draw near to God. But when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And we can experience his presence in profound ways. And you know what? I think when we start feeling like we haven't experienced a lot of joy and pleasure lately, I think that's God saying, it's time to come. And it's time to encounter me. And it's time to get in my presence and draw near and put the phone away and put the busyness away and just rest. So, counsel, instruction, security, joy and pleasure. We experience all of these things and more when we make the Lord the greatest treasure of our lives. And how do we make God, how do we make the Lord our greatest treasure? By surrendering to his boundaries, by choosing him instead of the portion, by giving him our pebbles, and by rem remembering our true inheritance, giving him our expectations and saying, God, all we need and all we want is you.